Some time ago, I took a long-distance airplane flight to somewhere, and I had the pleasure of sitting next to a very engaging middle-aged lady. She was uh, an editor of a magazine. The name of the magazine escapes me. She, she was an editor of a magazine in, in Manhattan, and we were on a long flight together, and after things kind of settled in, we got into a conversation with one another, and uh, she was very engaging. We, we covered the subjects of our culture, politics, history, our different travel experiences, and through the course of our interaction, it came out that I was a pastor and one of those Bible-believing pastors. And that transitioned to, of course, discussion on my views on abortion, our overseas military involvement, matters of the family, sexuality. And it was very engaging. She was quite uh, interested and winsome, and we had this very, very lengthy uh, conversation. And almost in a throwaway comment... I said something to the effect of, well, you know, since Jesus is risen and the brakes came on. And she stopped and said, oh, right. You people actually think he rose from the dead. I guess if that were the case, it would change everything. And I thought, well, yeah, <laughs> it, it does change everything. I was stunned. I was abraded. Because we'd been speaking now together for at least two to three hours. And I'd failed to even bring to the focus of our conversation the very crux of the Christian faith, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The steward soon came up with our meal, and as soon as we started to eat, she immediately engaged in a movie, and after the movie, she went to sleep, and that was the end of the conversation, except for continued congenial best wishes to one another as we were disembarking. When our neighbors learn that we are evangelical Christians, with what do they identify us? Do they see us as just another special interest voting block and assume, if they get into a conversation with us, that we want to talk about abortion, we want to talk about homosexuality, we want to talk about social justice issues, we want to talk about the size of our government? Is that what they expect us to talk about? Or when they hear that we are Bible-believing, evangelical Christians, would they immediately say, Oh, yeah, you're the people who think that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. I've heard about you. What are they hearing us talk about? Well, brethren, I believe, and I'm sure you believe as well, that Jesus' resurrection is the crux of Christianity. Jesus' resurrection is what we are to proclaim to our unconverted family, to our friends, 
what we are to endorse and promote and strengthen in our fellowship with one another as a church. If our religion is not vitally, livingly united to the resurrected Jesus Christ, then we are not experiencing new covenant religion. We can cobble together all kinds of Bible verses and come up with a Bible view of the family, the biblical view of finances, the biblical view of education. We're just quoting Bible verses to construct the biblical view of fill in the blank. That is not necessarily biblical Christianity. The gospel announces the good news that Jesus Christ is risen. And therefore, we confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, you have a reputation of being a Berean-spirited people. So I want you to take your Bibles and search these things together with me this morning. I intend to express four points in this message And I counted, I think, some 23 texts that we're going to look at, and I'll be making references to others. So with a Berean spirit, let me begin by saying that Jesus demonstrated his resurrection. Jesus demonstrated his resurrection. We turn to the book of Acts, reading at verse 3. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them for a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Luke now picks up where he left off in the gospel. He brings us back to the time after the resurrection, but preceding the ascension. In the gospel, he has told us on that first day of resurrection that Jesus himself now risen from the dead, met with his apostles after having met the women at the womb, or rather tomb, that we read earlier in chapter 28 of Matthew. He then also that day walked alongside two disciples on the way to Emmaus. He met with Peter, and he also met with his disciples later that evening in Jerusalem. The second Lord's Day, There was also a meeting in Jerusalem, and this time Thomas was present. We are also told that Jesus manifest himself in Galilee, as the angels told the women, as we read earlier, to go to Galilee where Jesus would meet them and they would see him. He had breakfast on the beach with seven of his apostles, John tells us in John 21, and Luke tells us, that he spent a period of some 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. If you keep your finger in Acts, Paul makes the, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes a summary of the substance of the gospel, the facts of the gospel. This is what we are to announce in 1 Corinthians 15. Reading in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. 
After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. These are historical manifestations of the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus Christ, and I just point your attention to the two times that Paul says this is all according to Scripture. The resurrected Christ met with individuals to comfort and to encourage. He met with the gathered apostles to instruct and commission them. And he also revealed himself to a gathering, a group of disciples, some 500 in order to confirm the reality of his resurrection, having died on the cross. Paul tells us some of those who saw him were alive when Paul himself penned the letter to the Corinthians, somewhere in the mid-50s. And their testimony certainly would have encouraged the believers who did not witness the resurrected Lord, as did many others. If you turn back to John chapter 20, we come to that second Lord's Day where now previously Thomas had been absent. Now he is present because the others were telling him, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas now present with the disciples on the appearance of Christ Jesus. In John chapter 20, verse 29, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Well, brethren, that includes us. We're the blessed ones in this text. Because we have not seen the risen Christ with the eyes of flesh. But we are blessed if the Spirit has opened our eyes that with the eyes of faith we see what is revealed to us in the scriptures. The New Covenant Church is comprised of people who are convinced by the Holy Spirit from the testimony of the apostles in the Word of God of the historic reality, the actuality, of the crucified, risen Jesus Christ. That brings us, secondly, to realize that the church declares Jesus' resurrection. The church declares Jesus' resurrection. He demonstrated it, and now the church declares it. The Christian church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. And we, built upon the apostolic gospel, are an edifice entrusted with this message. We are a living temple, and we are the pillar and the ground of the truth. It is up to us to get this message out and to proclaim the excellencies of our glorious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. All of us, not just the men qualified and set apart for public preaching, teaching ministry, this message is entrusted to all of us. We are entrusted with the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Annually, on the occasion of Easter, the world kind of gets an echo of something about this resurrected 
But the resurrection of Jesus Christ should be our constant focus, our constant message. Indeed, it's the very reason why we meet on the first day of the week. Because it is a constant reminder of our union and fellowship with the risen Jesus Christ. When you look at the ministry of the Apostle Peter, as Luke informs us of Peter's ministry, we come back to the book of Acts, and I direct your attention to Acts chapter 2, on the occasion of Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, dropping down at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, having therefore been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended to heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In chapter 3, verse 16, and I'm sorry, sorry, verse 13 to verse 15, here we drop down on the occasion of Peter and John effecting the healing of a beggar in the temple. Dropping into verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you disowned the Holy One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the Prince of Life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we our witnesses. Again, before the Sanhedrin, chapter 4 in the book of Acts, dropping in at verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man was made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven that has been given among men by which we may be saved. Again, Peter and the apostles brought once more before this same Jewish court, the Sanhedrin, Acts chapter 5. They're not changing their message. The situation is becoming more oppressive, but they continue dropping in at verse 30 in Acts chapter 5. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging on the cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This was Peter's constant testimony to the Jews in Jerusalem. And it was Peter who then was privileged to take the gospel in Acts chapter 10 into the house of a Gentile. 
a centurion named Cornelius. We drop in Acts chapter 10 at verse 34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he has sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of these things, the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on the cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible not only to all the people but to witnesses who were chosen before God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who had been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead, Of him the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. This is the message that is sounded forth by the apostles, that foundational strata of our church. Back to chapter 4, where we have a reference to the preaching of the apostles in verse 2. Here again, within the city of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4, verse 2. They were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They have this opportunity brought about by the healing of this man, and they explain that Jesus is the one responsible for this miraculous work that gives them opportunity to testify to his resurrection. Verse 33 in Acts chapter 4. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. If you were to stop the man in the street in Jerusalem and ask him, hey, I heard about this Christianity. What is it all about? I believe what they were hearing would have that man answer the question, it's about the resurrection of Jesus. They keep on telling us about the resurrection of Jesus. If we were to ask the man on the street in our American towns and cities, what would they say? I've heard about Christianity. What is it all about? You may come up with all kinds of answers, but the correct answer, isn't it? Jesus is risen. Jesus is Lord. When we come to the ministry of the Apostle Paul, he doesn't arrive in the pages of Scripture as an apostle. In fact, he doesn't even arrive as a disciple. He would have been known as Saul the terrorist. Something changed him. Acts chapter 9, what changed him was the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 9, reading at verse 3, as he was traveling, it happened that 
he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. It was the resurrected Christ who revealed himself, and this resurrected Christ, by his Spirit, through the testimony of the Scriptures, has confronted each of us who have come to faith in him. He is the reason why we're Christians, because Christ is risen, and because Christ steps into our lives and reveals himself by his Spirit in the light of the Word of God to be the risen Jesus Christ. And what was entrusted to Paul, this gospel of the resurrected Christ, radically transformed him and set him now as the missionary to the Gentiles. The church in Antioch sent him forth to both declare and through his life and sufferings to demonstrate the reality of the gospel of Christ. In chapter 13 of Acts, we come in the first missionary journey where Peter I rather, Paul is preaching in Pisidian Antioch. It's one of the longest accounts that Luke gives us of Paul's ministry, which is to tell you this is very important. Back in those days, you only had so much material upon which to write something. So if you find something repeated, it must be important because they're using up space. And if you find it a, a long record of something given to you, that must be very important because they're using up precious space. And this is a, a lengthy record in which Paul rehearses redemptive history. He starts from the Exodus in the Old Testament and gives account of historical dealings of God with his people up to John the Baptist, and he has a particular focus on Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David, and God's promises to David. Notice in verse 23 of Acts 13. From the descendants of this man, David, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Verse 26. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us, the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, 
you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things which you could not be freed from through the law of Moses. You hear the sound of the note. Keeps on coming through. Who is this Jesus? He's the one whom God has raised from the dead. At Thessalonica in chapter 17 of Acts, looking at verse 2 and 3, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. He has been crucified and risen just as prophecy has told us. Same chapter later in Athens. Looking at verse 18. And so some among the, among the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He's invited to speak to the intelligentsia of the day. And what does he have to say to them? Well, at the end of his message, he has to tell them in verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, furnishing proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Why do you get invited into this hall of academic Inquiry, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. What did he say when he got there? He preached Jesus and the resurrection. You know that Peter, or rather Paul then, after going back to Jerusalem, is taken into custody and spends a number of years hereafter in prison. He once again, in chapter 23, finds himself in the court in Jerusalem before the Sanhedrin. Chapter 23 and verse 6. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and another Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I'm a Pharisee and the son of Pharisees. I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Same message when he comes before Felix in chapter 24, verse 14 to 16. But this I admit to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I do my best always to maintain a blameless conscience both before God and before men. This resurrection not only concerns Jesus 
but it concerns the dead, and it concerns all men, and it concerns the apostle, because he lives his life in the light of the resurrection of the dead. Before Festus, same message, chapter 25, looking at verse 19. Poor Festus couldn't quite get it. But here's what he got when he was asked, what is this all about with this Paul character? And these accusing him from the Sanhedrin. They simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion, and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserts to be alive. That's what he got out of the proceedings. They think Jesus is dead. Paul says he's alive. That's the essence of what Paul had to communicate. In chapter 26, before Agrippa, looking at verse 6 to verse 8, Paul, and now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God day and night. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? Verse 22, so having obtained help from God, I stand this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Here is Paul's message. Here is Peter's message. Here is the message of the apostles whether they are in a small group, whether they are in a large gathering, whether they are in a courtroom of Jews or Gentiles, the message is the same. The crucified Jesus is risen. The resurrection of Jesus is the crux of Christianity. Luke tells us this is the good news. This is the gospel that is to be proclaimed. Therefore, this is the message we are to receive And also to declare the Christ who was foretold in the Old Testament has come. He has suffered as was prophesied. He is risen as was foretold. And the pivotal redemptive event of mankind has happened. Christ is risen from the dead. So we've seen that Jesus demonstrated his resurrection, the church declares his resurrection. Thirdly, as we turn back to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, Scripture interprets the resurrection. Scripture interprets the resurrection. Reading in verse 44, the words of the risen Christ in Luke 24 Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What scriptures? He just told you. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, 
and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Brethren, it's not enough to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We are called to entrust ourselves in this resurrected Jesus and to understand him as he is interpreted to us in the pages of our Bible, God interprets God. Scripture interprets Scripture. The words of the Old Testament, the words of Christ himself, the words of the apostles, which are the words entrusted to us as the church, that we may instruct Christians that we may confess and witness the name of Christ to the world and call all who hear this message to respond to this Jesus and what he has accomplished for us in his death and resurrection. Jesus' incarnation, the Son of God's incarnation as Jesus, his works, his words, his life. It was the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the life of the age to come breaking into this present age, signaling there's forgiveness of sins. There's a day of judgment coming. You've got a day that's appointed for you in the day of court. You're headed in the, in the courtroom of God, and you're headed there. And you can go there having had your sins forgiven, having been pronounced justified, having been given the Spirit to be alive in this living Christ. So that day for you will be the day of your inheritance, the day of your great reward. And Jesus constantly points us to the blessings of this resurrection, this gospel of forgiveness, this eternal blessing. Think of a miracle that Jesus performed. Think of a parable that Jesus taught. Think of a block of teaching that the gospels record for us. All of it points us to the resurrection, to the resurrection, to the life of the age to come. And Jesus often explicitly, clearly told his disciples we're going to Jerusalem, where the elders and the and 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 the leaders are going to persecute me, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. And oftentimes his disciples didn't have a clue. Why? Because they were bringing to the Bible an agenda foreign to the Bible. They did not understand the teachings of the Old Testament. And one of the things that Jesus has to do in that time between his resurrection and his ascension is make sure they get the Old Testament right. Because you're not allowed to cram Jesus into any agenda that you happen to think of. You can't just take him and use him for any cause you want. He's God. He's Lord. And there's this thing called the third commandment. He is really jealous about how his name is spoken among men. So he comes in his resurrection and he says to these disciples, I'm going to give you a a module class, 40-day class on hermeneutics it's how to interpret your bible and so he teaches them from the law 
from the prophecies, the typologies, the pictures, the institutions, the particular people, the actual historical events of the Old Testament, from the law. Jesus is the last Adam. Jesus is the seed of the woman. Jesus is Abraham's true promised son. Jesus is the prophet like unto Moses. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the sacrificial system. He is the temple of God. He is the high priest. He is the lamb of God. In him, we are en route in Exodus through this wilderness to our promised land, the resurrection of the cosmos. He is our manna on the way there. He is the rock that sprouts water. We are on our journey to enter his glorious Sabbath rest. From the prophets, he tells us, look at the ministry of Isaiah. You'll see me replicating the same thing Isaiah was given to do, same thing that Ezekiel was given to do. All the prophets speak of me. I'm that son of man that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. I'm what is signified by Jonah's descent to death in the belly of the fish and being spewed out. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the servant of the Lord of which Isaiah speaks. Look at the writings. Look at the historical books. See David's conquests. I'm the warrior king of the people of God. See Solomon's building of the temple. This is the one who builds the everlasting temple of God. All of the citations of the Psalms, these are the words that come to us from the very heart of Christ and teaches us how to lament teaches us how to rejoice, teaches us how to worship, teaches us how to express our our concerns and our doubts and our anxieties and our fears and our wrestlings. He has fulfilled it all. All of the covenants, the the Adamic, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Old Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, the New Covenant, they are all given so that we might understand who we are as the covenant people united to our covenant head, Jesus Christ. All the Bible is about Jesus, you see. And it's about the Jesus who is revealed in the Bible. We do not read Jesus back into the Old Testament. No, he's already there. He's already there. And that's what Jesus was teaching his disciples between his resurrection and his essential and his ascension, he opens their eyes that we might understand the scriptures and see Jesus there. And they took their Bible, their Old Testaments, and they proclaimed, this Jesus who we proclaim to you is the Christ. This is the one whom we have been longing for. He is our Lord. He is the great I am. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the great chapter on the resurrection in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15, notice that not only did the apostles preach that Jesus was resurrected, they preached the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead is something that happens at the end of the world. That's, if you study systematic theology, 
and you get to the last part of these like really big thick books and the last part has to do with last things and that's where you come to the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead but the apostles were preaching the resurrection of the dead as part of the gospel you should Can you think this thought? With the resurrection, the end of the world has come. With the resurrection of Jesus, the end of the world has come. How can we understand that? Well, Paul says, understand it the way a harvest is taken. Chapter 15 of the book, 1 Corinthians, looking at verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. In Adam, we die. Jesus, the last Adam, gives life, resurrection life. Jesus, in his resurrection, is not like Lazarus, who is resuscitated back into a life of this present age. Imagine hanging out with Lazarus. Talking about death. That's okay, I've I've been there, done that. That's not what Jesus is saying to us. He's saying, I'm going ahead of you. I'm the firstborn from the dead. I'm the last Adam. I've begun a new kind of humanity. New men. New creation. Behold, I am making all things new. Not I'm making all new things. I'm taking all things under the curse of death and I'm giving them life. I'm making them new. I'm making them into resurrection glory. Paul says it's already started. It's already begun. Like the first fruits. You see, we, 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 don't, we don't live in an agricultural economy. We don't understand the significance of a first fruit. You see, the first fruit is the first. It's the first in a sequence. It means it, 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 it has begun the day of harvest. But the first fruit also answers the question, is it going to be a good harvest? What is the quality of the fruit that we're going to harvest. And the first fruit means the harvest has begun. The season has begun. It's time now for dead sinners to awaken and to come into this life of resurrection, vitality, and power, and grace. Why? Because Christ Jesus is risen. How can we come into this life? Well, the Christ who is risen is now authorized to give a down payment of that life to all of his people. The Holy Spirit himself being the guarantee in the gift and blessing of the new birth. 
Do you believe in Christ? Why? Why you and not him? Because of the sovereign work of the Spirit who blows where he wishes. And he's given you the wherewithal to believe, to repent, and to begin to live a life that is not of this age. It's a life of the age to come, and it's already broken into this, life, into this age. It's a life that's characterized by love. It's a life that's characterized by gospel dynamics. It's a life that transforms individuals. It transforms our relationships with others, how we work, how we spend our money, and it forms a community of people who are no longer identified by their ethnicities or their language or their economic standings or their intellect and degrees or whatever. All those things that otherwise distinguish men are made irrelevant because we're new men in Christ. And that is the church. And this is the explanation for the church. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And this is the message that has been entrusted to us. Even as we saw earlier in Acts chapter 17, looking at verse 3, once again, this Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. This Jesus, this biblically defined Jesus, this Jesus who is to be understood in the categories, the metaphors, the prophecies, the typologies of the Old Testament, this Jesus, not the politicized Jesus, not the militarized Jesus, not the economicized Jesus, if there's such a word, biblical Jesus for a biblical purpose so that you, if you're dead in your sin, might hear good news. You see, because if this Jesus is going to save you and call you from the dead, you know what he's going to do? He's going to send you a preacher. And through the foolishness of preaching with an open Bible, the Spirit is pleased to work miraculous life in dead sinners. And if you hear this voice, it is because you've been made alive. Now live that life. Find out what it means to be alive and live the life. Even in the face of death, even in the face of tragedy, even in the face of disappointment, even in the face of struggles and sorrows. Live this life because you're joined to the first fruit. His resurrection guarantees yours. And the quality of the glory of his resurrected body informs you of what's in store for you. And because he is risen, it is guaranteed. It is certain. All who are in Christ, even though they die, yet shall they live. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we pray that this repeated message of the gospel of the risen Christ might be received in our hearts, might be lived in our lives, 
might be declared by our lips, might be celebrated and experienced as we would assemble in your presence each Lord's Day. Make us to be a people who are alive in the living Jesus in whose name we plead. Amen.